Colossians chapter 1, join me as we are starting a series uh, last week. We're doing part number two on a series that's, tie, that's talking about Colossians. Let me just, as we get started, take you back into the fact that there are some people who just don't really, really they, they aren't overflowing with common sense. They may have degrees, but they may have graduated, but it doesn't mean they're really wise or intelligent. Let me give you a couple examples of what I'm talking about. 19-year-old young man is following, driving down the freeway out west, and he realized that he's behind a group of the Hells Angels motorcycle gang. He is so enthused that he hasn't seen them on the highway that he wants to get his cell phone out while he's driving and take a videotape of the Hells Angels right in front of him, and he's so involved with getting it all set that he gets too close, hits one of their bikes, knocks that guy down, who knocks down another guy, knocks down a couple of others. So when the ambulance came after the emergency call, they treated some of the bikers who had fallen for the injuries. They also had to treat the young man for a lot of facial injuries that were inflicted by a series of fists. Not a real bright young man. Here's another young man that called the police, a true story, called 911. He called because he wanted the police to come and resolve a problem that was happening at a convenience store. He visited this convenience store regularly. He bought beer there, and he's there, and now the clerk won't sell him beer unless he can come up with an ID that says he's over 21. Well, he's not over 21, is what he told the, the police that, that showed up. Instead, his, his response was, I bought beer here before by paying a bribe, and it's your job to make them take my bribe in order to give me the beer illegally. They took him away. Uh, another person called 911 who was visiting out west, and they were, got up early in the morning, and they saw what they thought was a brush fire that was covering the plains. So they called 911 to get out there. There's this major fire that's just covering. It's glowing so much that the whole sky looks like it's a fire. They called back a few minutes later and said, uh, it's the sunrise, so don't bother sending anybody. Not real bright. Here's one about a true story that happened in England. Two gentlemen came who were uh, contracted by the police to come and they put those ankle bracelets on for house arrests that the person knew they can tell whether they go in or out. So the two different techs came, they put that on the person's leg and they left. He was supposed to be under house arrest for a series of, of weeks because of his drug work and affiliations and, and all that. Well, that very hour he left the house. And he was out gone for hours himself, doing his own thing, even though he's supposed to be under house arrest. They found out hours later when he was strapped, uh, stopped for a traffic violation, they found out that he was out of his house. Now, it wasn't that the ankle bracelet wasn't working, and it wasn't that it wasn't attached. It's the problem is they put it to his prosthesis, which he just took off and left the house. Those two techs were fired within the next day. Some people just aren't, you know, the brightest bulb in the box. So Paul is writing to the Colossians, and he's saying, you who are born again, I want you to be wise. And he's going to talk about spiritual wisdom that should come to their life, which, by the way, are we living in a society that needs wisdom? I'm not saying education. I'm saying wisdom, where you think properly, where you analyze properly, where you use common sense, especially in the spiritual realm. So he's writing to these people in Colossians, and he's writing to say, I really, I really fear for you, and I'm going to pray for you that you get spiritual wisdom. 
That's part of his opening of his letter that we want to focus on. Let me, um, let me back up and give you background information. So those of you who weren't with us last week, didn't get some, let's set the setting. Let's set the scene. What he's doing is he's writing from prison, and that's because a young man who, is, who he had possibly led to the Lord, his name is Epaphras, came to him from the city of Colossae, traveled to Rome where Paul was in prison, some 900 plus mile trip, came to him and said, um, we need your help. And so Paul heard from Epaphras what's going on in the Colossae church. And so he writes to them to be an encouragement. He writes to them to, to help them out and understand he has a tie to them. He's never visited them. We already looked at that last week. He's never been to the city of Colossae. However, he has influenced Philemon. He has influenced Onesimus, who are in the church of Colossae. He has influenced Epaphras, and so very likely these are his spiritual grandchildren. They have been led to the Lord by people he led to the Lord, so he has a vested interest in them. They're brothers and sisters in Christ, at least. And he writes to encourage them in their Christianity and to combat heresy. The two major heresies were the Judaizers, people adding to faith, saying that you have to do certain rules and regulations, plus believe to get saved, which is very common in our country today. You have to be baptized, you have to be a church member, you have to do certain things, plus believe, and then you go to heaven. And we all know that's not true. We know we are saved by faith, not of works lest any man should boast, that it's the work of God simply forgiving us when we repent and believe in Jesus Christ. The other heresy, just let me refresh because this is pivotal to the first few verses. It's the Gnostics. We might call them the know-it-alls. They were a group of people that blent Christianity with mysticism, Eastern mysticism. They were people that said to get saved you need to develop deeper knowledge. And this is mystical type things that are said today that if you connect with a spirit being, if you channel, if you speak to an angel or some other emanation, if you get some insights or some visions or some dreams, that will help you to really get in touch with yourself and with God Almighty. And that was part of their salvation experience. They would teach, if, I, if we had a Gnostic standing here today, they would say, if you are saved by having contact with Jesus, first of all, to really, really, really complete your salvation and to grow, you need to develop spiritual knowledge. You need to have insights that come to only a select group of people, usually clergy, usually them, and so they were teaching that they knew in a, in a totally different way than anybody else, they knew God. They knew God's will. They knew God's ways. And in order to find that out, if I were a Gnostic, I would say, you have to come and ask me, and I will give you God's will for your life. You come and talk to me, and I will give you a little bit of my spiritual knowledge because I have developed so much spiritual knowledge, I've almost come to a point of perfection. That's how heretical the Gnostics were. And they were dangerous to the church. And so they are infiltrating the church of Colossae. Paul is going to write to them. And when Paul writes this letter to those individuals, we looked at last week, he starts off with praising the Colossians, verses 1 through 8. If you want to just gloss and look over that real quickly, he says, I am thankful for your faith, your love, your hope. But then the next few verses, he prays for them. This is all his introduction. And he prays to them, and even though they have done well, they have faith, they have love, they have hope, 
He says, I am praying for further growth in your life. And that's what we want to talk about is what specifically did he pray for? But what it teaches us is that spiritual growth is not automatic. It teaches us that spiritual growth is an ongoing process. Salvation is a momentary, once getting born again. But then you have to grow, and it's a process that we grow. And none of us have arrived where we say we, we've grown and we've achieved and we've become perfect. He's going to make that very clear. And by the way, keep in mind, the Gnostic said you could become perfect and had no more growth to be done in your life. Well, he's going to make it clear that's not true. We always have ongoing needs for growth. And it requires effort. It requires effort. And as you look at the Bible, there is three participants who are making effort for you to grow spiritually. For you to, after you get born again, to grow in Christ, it involves God working in your life. That's why he prays to God. Please, God, give them what they need. And so he's going to mention that in this prayer that he makes, that God is actively involved in helping the Colossians and you and me to grow if we respond right. There is the believer themselves. He's going to say in verse 10 that you walk worthy, that you show the fruitfulness. And so there's effort that we have to put into this growing by eating, digesting, exercising spiritual nourishment and spiritual truths. There's a third party that is critical for the Colossians and for you and me to grow. We need God. We need to do our part. But we also need other believers. We need other believers to help us, to hold us accountable, to encourage us, to help us out, to point out things that we are too blind to see because we get caught up with this myopic sight that we think we've arrived, we've achieved. We need other believers to be praying for us. That's what Paul does. Paul prays for these people. After he has praised them, he gives us his prayer. And let's look at it in verse 9. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of, of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. We pray as well that you may walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. While you are strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, while you are giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers in the inheritance of the saints of light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin. That is a running prayer, a singular sentence, in fact, that he is going to be talking about. And let's just dissect it this way this morning. Let's talk about the practice of prayer, and then let's talk about his petitions in his prayer. The practice of prayer, his example that he gives us, Paul writing tells us that he personally prayed. We see that Paul actually prayed, not just talked about it. He was good with theology, but he was better with neology where he prayed, actually did it, not just wrote about, you guys should pray, he did it. He's the parent who practices what he preaches. He's an individual who prayed regularly. We read where he's made the comment, always praying for you. We don't cease to pray for you. Similar, but a little bit different. He did it repeatedly. 
He prayed since the first time we've heard about it. He prayed regularly, but in his specific prayer request, he's praying for needs of others repeatedly. We keep on, since the day we heard about your needs, we're praying about your needs. We keep on doing this, and this is a part of my life. I pray daily. I pray regularly. I pray for you on, our, on an over-multi-repeated basis. He prays with others. We pray for you. He's including Timothy from verse 1. That they're praying together. He's praying for others. Which Paul encouraged through many epistles. The idea pray for one another. Pray for one another. Jesus talks about praying for one another. It's not wrong to pray for your own needs. But it is incumbent upon us to be praying one for another. And Paul did that. Not only wrote about it, but he did it. He prayed while he's in prison. Praying for others while he's in prison. Praying repeatedly where most individuals, most of us in our spiritual immaturity, we would be praying about our needs and only our needs while we're going through a difficulty and not stopping to think about the needs of others. We get very nearsighted to focus on just what we're experiencing. And Paul in prison is praying for other individuals who he's never even met, but they are spiritual kin. And so he prays for them while in prison. He prays with great intensity. Verse 9, that word that he says, we are praying, and he says, and desire. He brings it in. It's a great desire, a great wanting. It's almost to the point of demanding with respect. I'm demanding when I pray that God would bless you this way. With respect, I'm demanding. Something else that strikes me is he prayed very pointedly. As he's praying for these people, keep the context in mind. The reason he is praying is they've got a problem. The problem is the Gnostics are infiltrating. The Gnostics are corrupting. The Gnostics are saying, you need me. You need us to give you a little bit, a bit of all the spiritual wisdom, the spiritual understandings that we have. Otherwise, you can't get it. You have to rely solely upon us because we are the interpreters of God's will for you. Well, he writes and he says in his prayer, we are praying specifically for God to give God to give you the same words that the Gnostics were using. You see, it's, isn't it true? There are others and groups out there that they can use Christian terms. They use the vocabulary, but they don't have the same dictionary. Are there other groups out there that talk about being born again? but they don't have the same definition as Jesus Christ? Yes, no? That's all over. Are there others that talk about hell, but they don't have the same definition as Scripture? I was reading about a preacher this week, a popular preacher in America. He defines for his congregation, hell is experiencing low self-esteem. Well, that's, not, that, that's using a Bible term with a non-biblical definition. The Gnostics were using Bible terms with unbiblical definition. And Paul is going to write and correct and help them to understand spiritual wisdom, spiritual knowledge, spiritual understanding. Knowing the will of God is not simply in one person available to one individual. It's going to be available to all, which becomes a major part of the, what he talks about in verse 9 and what he shares the rest of the book. 
Something else that strikes me is when Paul prayed, he prayed first and foremost for spiritual needs rather than the material or physical needs. That when he thought about the Colossians, the first thing that he was concerned about is their spiritual development. Is that to say we shouldn't pray for physical needs? No. No, we ought to. We ought to be praying for the physical needs of individuals like we shared this morning some of the prayer requests with individuals who are going through crisis situations, given a limited time of a health, a health situation. We pray for them physically, but most importantly, we pray for their spiritual stability and growth and maturity in the face of that crisis. When you pray for your family, Do you find yourself praying more for the physical, the material, the mundane? Or do you pray for the spiritual needs? I I find myself, it's, it's just the battle of these moments, of this time, the frustration of the isolation and the loneliness. That it's easy to pray that all of a sudden just, let's have, let's just, Lord, get out of the problem. Get out of the, the situation, which we pray for. And that's, that's not inappropriate. That's proper. But in the meantime, do we pray for patience? No, because if I pray for patience, then it may, he may keep me here longer. You know, Lord, pray that my kids would just, you know, something would change in my kids where they would, you know, whatever. Do you pray for their spiritual understanding, not just that they conform to your will? And so he does that. He reminds us that the spiritual far exceeds the physical than the material. You've, you've probably never heard of this guy, or maybe some of you have. Use of the terrible Turk. Around the 1900s, he was one of those all-star wrestlers. They did have it back then, yes. And he was a wrestler from Turkey, he claimed. And he came to America for the world championship, and he went against Strangler Lewis, and he won. Now, the, the quirky thing about Yusef the Terrible Turk is whenever he won, he wanted not cash. He wanted silver or gold coins for the payment. He wouldn't accept anything else. So he won the belt, the wrestling belt in America, and the prize money, he insisted that they give him silver dollars. And then he attached them to the belt, and he had this heavy, 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 you know, heavy laden with all kinds of silver dollars that he went back to his country, got on the boat, and started going back. Well, you probably already guessed, if you're on a boat and going back, and they have the same experience he did, where the boat starts going down, what, it should, what you should not do is try to put the belt on and salvage it. So Yusuf, the terrible Turk, went down, because he was hanging on to the physical, the material. How many people you know that are hanging on to the physical and the material, and they would go down with the boat rather than use the common sense. And Paul's writing and saying, listen, the most important thing in this life is the spiritual, not the physical. And he demonstrates that when he prays. When he prays for family members, he prays first and foremost for their spiritual maturity. Do you? Something else that strikes me about his prayer. He is extremely God-conscious. In the fact that he is saying that this, is, this has been my, this is what I do regularly. 
you know, whenever you come to mind, I, I pray for you in the sense that, that in this conversation, it's very easy for me. I have, I have this, he's kind of like Nehemiah, the Old Testament. That all of a sudden when Nehemiah is doing his job, kneeling before the governor, and the governor says, what bothers you? He says, I prayed a prayer. He's God conscious. Paul says, I'm God conscious that I, I have this that I, I pray whenever. Now, I'm not saying that when you're driving down the road, you should close your eyes and kneel down. But Paul had the mindset that when he would be traveling, he could say a quick prayer. He was confident of his relationship with the Lord. And he was God conscious that God is that nearby, that God is that involved, that God is that interested, that as he goes and does something else in the day, he could pray. He could pray for people. He was people conscious in that, that all of a sudden when they came to mind, he'd pray for them. They, he, would, he would pray for this individual, that individual, Philemon, I'm praying for you, Onesimus, I'm praying for you, you people in Colossae, I've been, I'm praying for you. And he can say it with the leading of the Holy Spirit so it's not just the thing to say, it's true. It's true in his life. He prayed a lot during the day, quick, you know, sending up the signals to God, please help so-and-so. And he was sensitive to other people, looking and saying, I can help them. I can help them. And I don't know about you, but this, this frustrates me. When you hear of somebody in a desperate need, you say, what can I do for you? And they say, just pray for me. And my initial response is, but I want to do something more. What's the most benefit we can give them? It would be the prayer. Praying for them. And sometimes I diminish that aspect. And just say, well, that, that's too simple. But it is so important. And Paul did that. He prayed for them because they were his family. They were his spiritual family. Can, can we bring this before we move into his requests, his, what he does, his example. Can we, can we pause for a second and do a little bit of a quiz? Do you personally pray? Is this a hallmark of your daily life that you pray quickly at work, you pray between, you know, between customers, that you pray between errands that you're doing, that you pray frequently through the day because you're God conscious. Do, do you pray for others as they come to mind? Do you pray when you pray for them? Do you pray for their spiritual needs? Do you pray for their, their growth, their ability? Do you pray for their sensitivity, their, their wisdom? Do you pray in that fashion? Do you when you pray? Do you pray for your family? First and foremost, do you pray for their spiritual understanding and growth? I had one person tell me years ago, they said, I don't pray for my family every day. I was shocked. I asked that parent, why don't you pray for your kids? Because if I do, I'll get convicted. What do you mean you'll get convicted? Because if I'm praying for their spiritual growth, that means I have to be the one to help contribute to their spiritual growth. And I should teach them. I should get them to church. And so I don't even bother praying or I'm going to get convicted about the things I'm supposed to do. How horrible. How horrible. You, know, you may sit there and say, well, at least they were honest. I don't care if they were honest. How horrible. That you as a parent would say, I'm not going to pray because if I pray, I'll have to become some of the answer to my prayer. 
You're supposed to be doing that. That's what God called us parents to do. To train up the children in the way they should go. To nurture them in the admonition of the Lord. And so you and I, one of the places we can start as parenting is praying for our family. Praying for their spiritual needs, their spiritual maturity, their spiritual growth. Now that's, that's Paul's his practice of prayer. Let's look at his petitions. And as we look at the petitions, which is the bulk of this text, let me, let me point out he has three major concerns. The three concerns, we can just keep it in mind this way. In verses 9 to 14, he's praying for their wisdom. He's praying for their walk. And then he prays for their worship. He prays for wisdom, their walk, and their worship. Now, you know, the first time when I was traveling, I saw the Grand Canyon. It was from a plane when we were taking a missions trip. And they said, if you look out your window, you can see at, you know, so many thousands of feet down there, the Grand Canyon. And it was interesting. You know, others around me were calling it spectacular. From that distance, I didn't get the full effect. When all of a sudden you stand on the brim and look, you get more of the full effect. I think even a bigger, fuller effect would be taking a plane or helicopter and going through the thing or jump with Maury in a boat and go down you know, the river. My point is this. Sometimes when we come to scriptures, we gloss over it from an altitude of 40,000 feet. But it's worth at times to get down and to stand on the brim of the passage and to do a little bit digger deep. Thank you, deeper digging. I knew I didn't say that right. And really get the full effect. So what I want to do this week and the next couple of weeks is I really want to pause and do some deeper digging to get the full effect of the passage. So let's, this morning, let's look at one verse. And let's look at just what it says in and of itself. Verse 9. When verse 9, where he starts his prayer, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. In this, he's talking about the singular request, I'm praying for your wisdom. And as you just look at it, he says, here's what I'm praying for, knowledge of his will. I'm praying for you to get knowledge of his will. The word knowledge is more than the typical word knowledge. Gnosko is knowledge. This is epigonosko. That is complete, full, all of it. To really become an expert in. To get the full, the full grasp of what is God's will for my life. He says, I'm praying for that. And I'm praying that you become an expert in God's will in all wisdom. Sophia is the word. In all wisdom, it has the idea of being able to, to look at and say, right or wrong. This is right or wrong. Seeing something accurately. Seeing it correctly. Analyzing it. And then he says, and in, not stated, but there, all spiritual understanding. Spiritual understanding has the idea of not just here, of being able to analyze a situation, but actually then respond. To be able to do to act accordingly to what is right. So to get the full, the full scale of God's will, 
so as to understand as we go through life what is right, what is wrong, and then have the ability and the discernment to be able to put that into practice. I'll say it this way. Have the ability to rightly analyze teachings and situations and then take the right action as per God's will. That's what he's praying for. He's praying, for, for instance, that we count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Understand what the will of God is. What is to be my right response in this situation? It is not to be, I would have joy, but... And then how to express that joy. And so as he goes through, he makes another comment. He says, being filled with. The word filled with is a passive verb. It means somebody else putting this into you. Somebody else giving you the knowledge. Somebody else giving you the wisdom. Somebody giving you the spiritual understanding. It's not something you create within yourself, but you make yourself available for somebody else to pour in the wisdom. What strikes me is this idea to fill full is the same word that's used in Ephesians chapter 5. Be not drunk with wine where is in excess, but be what? Filled with the Spirit. And in that context, Phil has the idea of being controlled by. Being controlled by what I discern is right. Being controlled by the will of God. Being controlled by the appropriate response to a trial. To an individual. And so he's praying this. Can, can I summarize what this all means to you and me? Several statements. This means the spiritual truth that's demonstrated, God has moral absolutes. What I mean by that is this. God says certain things are right and certain things are wrong. God doesn't have ten suggestions. He had ten commandments. When we start saying, okay, what's that mean? God did not create a world or world order where it's subjective, where it's relative. He did not create mankind to say, if it feels good, it's all right. There's lots of things that feel good that aren't right. Okay? I, to my shame, but I can you speak to it. You, know, you could get drunk and feel good for a moment. That doesn't make it, getting, that doesn't make it right. You could express your anger and angst and start punching walls and punching things and say, oh, that feels so good. It doesn't make it right. There are certain things that God has established. These are right. These are wrong. God's, God's rights and wrongs are not based upon what the majority says. They're not based on cultural ideas. They're not based on human preferences. If I can illustrate what I'm talking about, God has standards of right and wrong for all people of all ages, ages, eons, eras, of, for all believers. They include some of these. I'll just put down a few. Right and wrong. It is always wrong to take it upon yourself to murder somebody. It's always wrong for you to take or me to take it upon ourselves. It is always wrong to physically abuse or mistreat someone. It's wrong. They may, they may be your child. That doesn't give you the right to abuse them. It is always wrong to personally steal or destroy somebody else's property. It's wrong. It's wrong to, to, uh, to take something that doesn't belong to you and make it your own without permission. It's wrong. 
it's always wrong to have sex outside of marriage. That's not what our culture says. Would you agree? Our culture is very permissive, but it's wrong. Marriage is between a man and a woman. That is God's standard. Married, it's wrong to put other creatures in front of God, other creatures or objects, including sports, cars, homes, people. It is, it is wrong to use the Lord's name in vain. It's wrong to take God's name as a curse word or jokes or you're trying to look macho and so you use God's name in cursing. It's wrong. It is wrong for married couples not to invest time and energy of working at and improving their marriage. It is always right for a husband and wife to work at correcting and improving their marital relationship. It is always appropriate for us to make the Word of God our highest standard over denominational rules, over you know, personal opinions, over traditions. God's Word trumps everything. The standard. Authorities over us are to be respected. We can't change that. Even if we don't agree with the authorities, we can disagree, but we must respect them. Standard. We are to pay our taxes and bills. If I don't pay somebody what they deserve for the labor that they have done, what am I doing to that person? I'm stealing from that person. I'm a thief. We are to provide. It is a standard. Parents are to provide for their children and train them up. God's moral standards. Right and wrong. I go back and say, okay, God only, not only has moral absolutes, that we are to have the wisdom to understand what's right and wrong. He says God's will and ways can be known. Now, that's not what the Gnostics were saying. They were saying, you can't know God's will. You can't understand God's will. God is a mystery. God is out there. Nobody really can know him but us few. Ah, he's saying, and the words he used, I want you all to be filled with the, whole, with the knowledge of his will. You can understand God's will. You can know God's will for your life. That's what he's praying for. That's what he's saying. Such lack of knowledge creates a real problem. Isn't this what he said in the book of Hosea? That he said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. I understand universities can put that on their gate, and it sounds cool about getting an education, but he's not talking about the ABCs. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. What knowledge? You rejected me. You've forgotten my words, my law. He had wrote to the Ephesians. He said, until we all come in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God, what we need to do is develop this understanding of God that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. His point is, you and I need to know his truth or we're going to have a problem. That's why he writes in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, I could not write unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto babes. Why? Because you didn't grow in your understanding when it came to the gifts. You were so excited about being able to show off and have everybody, woo, ah, you, because you could speak in tongues or whatever it was they were doing. He says, actually, you're children in understanding. You're very immature. 
And so Paul wrote them, you should have greater insight, greater understanding. You and I can know the will of God. We can grow in that area. And if we don't grow in our understanding, we could easily get caught up with false teachings, false influences, and make some really stupid decisions. Isn't that what the Galatians did? Where he has to write and says, Oh, you foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Who hath caused you to act like you don't have a brain? Spiritual insanity. So let me make another observation. Doing God's will is possible. Not only can you know it, but you can do it. All believers doing it. Knowing spiritual truth is where we start. It's not an end. Knowing spiritual truth is where we start. And that's where he starts with praying. I'm praying that you have spiritual understanding. Now next week we'll talk about how, what you do with it. Because it is so important that we not only learn, but we live it. Be not hearers of the word only, but be doers of the word. We'll talk more about that next week. Such spiritual learning is a lifelong process for all of us. Keep on being filled with the knowledge of his will, with spiritual understanding. Let this keep on happening to you. Let this keep on working in your life. You know, if we sit back and say, I've learned all the Bible I need. I know all about God that I need to know. I know everything there is to know. It would be like a college freshman student going to school and saying, okay, I got everything down pat. I'm just here to get the degree. I don't need any training. I, I know everything. And so they write a complete history, thorough history of world events in a five-paper page paper. That would be so arrogant and so silly of a student to submit that type of paper. But the Apostle Paul wrote this. After years of ministering, he writes in the book of Philippians, I count not to myself to have achieved, to, to have apprehended. I just keep on reaching forth unto those things which are before. I keep pressing towards the mark of the prize of the high calling. After decades of being a believer serving the Lord, he says, I still have areas to grow in. I still have growth to achieve. I still am not totally complete in my understanding of everything. And I need to have God continue to teach me. And that's what Paul's praying. He's praying and he makes the comment when he says, I'm praying for you, be filled with knowledge. Here's folk, this, this is where you and I are at. This knowledge is not within you. Understanding God's will is not innately within you. That would be extremely pompous to say, and that's the Gnostics, we found ourselves and we now know God. He's saying very clearly, you need knowledge of God, but it's going to come only from God. It's not something you concoct. It is something that God gives you. God revealing himself to you is what Paul is saying. You need the Lord to help you to grow. You need the Lord to help you to understand his will, his ways. It's not within you and me. Which says to you and me, that means every day we need to go back to the word for wisdom. We don't have enough in and of ourselves. This filling, this knowledge, not only implies the idea of being able to discern, to understand, to, to have the wisdom to know, what do I do in this case as a parent to correct my child? 
What do, I, what do I do? How do I approach this situation with them? How do I approach this situation where, where I'm not sure, should I do this? Shouldn't I do this? I pray for the wisdom. But not only the wisdom, but you pray for being controlled by what is, rise, what is right. That's the idea of filling. It's one thing to say, okay, what is God's will for me to deal with this conflict with this other person? God's word says I need to go to them. I need to speak in a spirit of meekness as I go to them. Hey, that's easy said until you get in the moment, and if they start shooting off their mouth to you, the spirit of meekness can do what? And you shoot back. Not only let me know what to do, but help me to be controlled by what I should be doing. Last of all, all of this requires a close fellowship with him. In order for you to get God's wisdom, you've got to stop, you've got to, stop, you got to listen. You've got to learn. And then you've got to put it into practice. Now, I, I understand. There's a lot of questions that are going to float around about this. And how do I know God's will? Well, here's how one guy did it. One guy said, I'll know if God wants me to do this or that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take ten coins. And I will flip them up in the air. And I will know it's God's will if they land ten times the same side. I bet you that guy did nothing. Because the odds of that happening. Or, or here's the way many people act. Like the farmer who he was, he farmed, farmed, did a half decent job at farming. He really wanted to be a preacher. And so he prayed to God, please God, please God, please God. Is it your will that I could become an evangelist preacher? And so one day he's out in the field and he's, he's plowing and he sees the clouds, he says, all of a sudden form two letters, PC. That's it. I'm to preach Christ. So he stopped the farm. He announced that to his friends what had happened. He started going about preaching, but he was horrid. He was awful as a public speaker. He drove people away. He was so bad. One of his friends came up to him after one service and said, are you sure PC didn't mean plant corn? Yeah. You, you can't determine God's will by such silly things as clouds. How do you know God's will? Where do you get the spiritual understanding? It's revealing God's word. And that means a couple sources. It means the comforters, the living word of God, Christ and the Holy Spirit. That they give you the guidance and the direction. When we would travel and make missions trips to Portugal, many of you came with us, we had different options of what we could do on these missions trips. We could go to Lisbon. He could, you know, Newtons could give us directions, go to this car place, get up the rental, and then drive out of the airport and go to the roundabout and get off at such and such a turn and then drive so many hours and then get off the road at this place. And when you go back to Lisbon, you could, you know, go and visit this site, this site, this site, this site. It would be great. It could be accomplished by having directions written out. But what would you rather have? This is me. I'm lazy. I don't want directions. I want a guide. I want Alan Newton to show up at the airport. And I don't have to worry about the car rental and speaking in Portuguese. You got it covered. When we're driving around the town, even if I have to drive one of the vehicles, I am going to hug your bumper and stay so close. I want the guide. Wouldn't you rather have the guide to give you daily direction and instruction and explain the word? 
So we go to, this, go to Christ and we stay close to him, we abide with him, we hang on to him, and we seek in prayer, God help me, help me, help me. And with the Spirit and with Christ helping us, then we go to the canon. The canon is not the thing that goes boom. This canon is the standard, the Word of God. And this standard, we open it up and we find commands, we find specific statements, we find principles by which we can wisely live in this life. And I can illustrate it just simply like this. What is God's will for your life? Let me give you, let me give you just quickly as I close, let me give you God's will for your life. And I know what it is. And I'm not a Gnostic. God's word says, what is God's will for your life as a believer? Here's one. In everything, give thanks. In everything, give thanks. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. This is God's will. So now we pray, God, keep reminding me of this. Keep filling me with this. This is your will. Help me to be controlled by this. And then we need the spiritual wisdom and understanding to know how does that apply? What should I be thankful for? Well, I shouldn't be thankful for bad choices. He doesn't say be thankful for everything. Yeah, fine. I want to be an idiot. I'm going to do my devotions out on 22nd Street. And I'm sitting out there, out in the middle of the road, not paying attention to the traffic. And all of a sudden, the traffic comes through, and boom, boom, boom. I'm rolling underneath a vehicle. Oh, thank you, God, that I was an idiot. Okay. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about in everything. Could God use that after I've made a bad decision? Sure. But the point is, I need to have discernment to make good decisions, number one. And then, as things come up, God, help me. Help me to make the right choices. Help me to be able to curb my mouth when I'm frustrated with COVID. So that I can be in God's will, displaying a thankful spirit, not an obnoxiously critical spirit and pessimism. I'm going to say it just... This, what the world needs now, and I'm not going to sing the song, okay? But what the world needs now, they need to see a display of peace and rejoicing from believers that will definitely be different than the rest of this world. That gives hope and confidence in the middle of chaos. Here's God's will for you. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. And it is talking about your physical purity, even you should abstain from fornication. It's talking about your sex life. What is the will of God? God, fill me with this knowledge. and Let me be controlled by this is your will. Help me to have spiritual understanding. What's right, what's wrong when it comes to dating? And I really like him or her. How does this apply in our dating relationship? What can we, can't we do? Give me wisdom in order to avoid the temptations. What do I do? What do I get out of my life so I don't, don't violate your will? Here's God's will for you. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise and his long-suffering towards us. We're not willing that any should perish. Oh God, keep filling me with this knowledge that you want people to be saved. Give me the wisdom to comply with your will to be a witness. Give me the understanding of what do I say to this person right now so as to help explain the gospel of grace. Here's God's will for you. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Be not drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Spirit. Lord, help me. Help me. Keep reminding me 
that I'm not supposed to be turning my body over to drugs and other influences, but rather to your spirit. Help me to remain under the control of the Holy Spirit. Please give me that assistance. That is God's will. In those four at least stated specifically in Scripture. So what do you do with this? What do you do with all of it? You've got to stop, folk. You've got to stop and evaluate your life. Are you growing in spiritual wisdom? Have you taken the time to learn more of God's will and ways this week? Did you, did you crack your Bible? Did you take a moment to meditate? To think through? Are you helping your kids to learn the word of God? Have you invested time and energy to help them to understand this is God's will for your life? And then you you and I pause and say, what about our prayer life? What changes do I need to make in my prayer life? Am I an individual who needs to start praying for family members in a different way? Do I need to start focusing, not forgetting their material, physical needs, but focusing on spiritual needs first and foremost? Maybe you need to change your prayer list. Maybe what you need to do is back up and say, godly wisdom, this is it. I need to employ it in my life like I've not been doing before. And we pray by the grace of God, you are filled with the knowledge of his will and with all wisdom and all spiritual understanding. God, I pray, please, help us not just to sit here and say, oh, it's been nice to go to church, which it is, but help us to walk away with determination to learn your will and to apply it better this week than we did this past. Help us by your grace to be prayer warriors one for another. Help us by your grace to express a concern for your will and your people. Thank you for these folks. Thank you for this fellowship. Thank you for the many listening at home. Give us a good Father's Day. Bless this week, especially these trialsome situations other families are going through. Give them grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.